Hey, Max, I have a feeling this episode is going to be a big hit. Why is that? Because I'm doing a certain very famous novella by Henry James, and we all love a tight screw. Who? (laughs) Never mind. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And my degree is in English, and I specialized in Victorian literature, and apparently that gives me the privilege of knowing what I was talking about when I talked about Henry James. (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, is you told me that you were doing Turning of the Screw this week. It's literally sitting right next to you. And I still was like, what is he talking about? (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. Nothing gets by me. I'm on my first cup of my second pot of coffee today, so that's my excuse. What he's not telling you is in between those two pots of coffee, he also had bang. I have have a serious caffeine problem. (sighs) Okay. Anyways, thank you, everybody, for listening again. And... I don't know. Should we say something about the election? I don't know. I feel like maybe we should mention it because we haven't. I mean, we haven't really acknowledged it, but that's because this election has literally lasted almost an entire week. And also because we haven't really recorded since the whole election happened, but then it didn't happen. But now we think we have it. Anyways. Yeah, I guess we have a new president. That is what it is. Let's move on. Cole's going to talk about screwing today. I'm going to talk about a movie. You always talk about your movie first. What movie are you going to do? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) You know how I always say to you, well, not always, but you know how, you know how I often say to you, don't go into the light, Carol Ann. And you're always like, why do you keep saying that to me? (laughs) Well, as I've told you in the past that you seem to forget every time I say it. So then I sound like a total weirdo. That quote is from Poltergeist, (gasps) which is what I'm talking about today. The 1982 movie by mostly Steven Spielberg, Poltergeist. I'm so excited because you may not remember, because sometimes you do forget things, but I specifically asked you to do this movie. I remember, well, I remember you had said something about it, but I couldn't remember if you said you wanted to watch it or if you wanted me to talk about it. And then I thought back and I was like, well, he couldn't have meant watch it. So I decided to do it. I believe I said that you should do it for the podcast. And then if I'm interested, we can watch it together. Yeah. You might be interested. Th- to be honest, this is going to be one of those movies where the plot summary is a little bit faster because there's a lot of backstory, as is often the case with classic horror. And it's quite interesting because this also is a cursed film. Because it has real skeletons in it. It's literally the only thing I know about it. It does have real skeletons about it, but also, well, they think that's why it got cursed. But do you know, like, why they think there's an actual curse, like what the what the um, things that happened are? No, I stopped at real skeletons. I once got to handle a real human skull when I had an anthropology class. It was so cool. I've never handled a skull, but I've uh, handled a few bones. No. <laughs> 
Anyway. He's here all week, folks. <laughs> I really am. And just, if you're me, he's here for a long time. Just never it just never stops. Okay. So, anyways, I'll get I'm gonna I'm gonna jump right into this because everyone's super excited because Poltergeist is obviously as you know, it's been very successful. Although I will say there are some people who do not care for this film. I listened to, I really wish I could remember which podcast it was, but I listened to one of the many horror podcast people in the community that we've kind of become a part of. Inserted ourselves into. I know, forcefully. They're all so great though, to be honest. I like these people. I mean, we live all over the place. We'll probably never hang out, but it's almost like we're hanging out when I listen to them. That said, say pot and die. If y'all are ever in <laughs> New Orleans, let a bitch know. Well, I listen to them the most, but I do listen to other ones too. It's nice. And maybe they listen to us. Who knows? <laughs> okay. Anyway, anyway, moving right along. So, Poltergeist, 1982. The reason I say mostly involving or mostly by Steven Spielberg is because Steven Spielberg does not actually have a director or a directorial credit for this. It was directed by Toby Hooper because at the time that this was filmed, Steven Spielberg was under contract for E.T., the extraterrestrial, saying that he could not direct any other films while working on E.T. So he wanted to do this film. He wrote the screenplay. There are two other people, Michael Gray and Mark Victor, who also have um, writer's credits, but Mostly with Steven Spielberg. And then when they talked to a lot of people about this, they basically said Spielberg more or less directed it. He just couldn't get a directorial credit because like the whole thing was like his idea. He chose most of the cast members, um, like the girl who plays Carol Ann, the little girl. Her name is uh, Heather O'Rourke. He found her in like, I think they said a commissary. I think it's like a food court at MGM and was like, that's a girl I want. And then she auditioned and everyone was like, she's terrible. And then she auditioned again and she cried, I guess. And they were like, never mind, she's perfect. Cast her. They were So I could never get this role. <laughs> well, they wanted somebody to be, I don't know. The the issue with her at first was she was really young and they thought that she might be too young to pro- portray the emotions. They also originally were considering Drew Barrymore for the role, but they said that they wanted to go with somebody more angelic looking. So you could not get this role because you're a demon. Rude. I have large, brown, innocent looking doe eyes. I don't know if I'd say doe eyed and angelic is the same thing, though. I think by angelic, they mean like, I don't know, like children of the damned, like people who are like freak it. I don't know, like Aryan looking. I don't know. Like when we were in Michigan and everyone had light hair and light colored eyes and I felt like a gnome. Yeah. I've referenced that before. Yeah. So, okay. So they ended up casting Heather O'Rourke for that. Additionally, he also wanted to cast, by he I mean Spielberg, virtually unknown actors for this because he thought that if he cast all these well-known actors, then when people watched it, they would focus mostly on the actors. And he wanted, this is a ghost story. I'm sure that's not a shock to anybody. Geist literally means ghost in German. So he wanted people to focus on the ghost story. And he thought that like a cast of like superstars would distract from the ghost story. Okay. I get it. So he did end up. I will say that uh, Craig T. Nelson is in this. He plays Stephen Freeling, the main grown up man, I guess, who's in the movie. And I'm assuming this was one of the movies from his earlier career because he's actually quite popular well quite famous now i don't know if i'd say he's popular now but he was in like a lot of stuff in the 80s and 90s anyway 
And to put this in a timeline perspective for anybody who's listening and for you, this is not in my notes. So now I'm going to fudge these dates. I could easily just look it up. But this is basically, I think, Friday the 13th, I believe, was 1980. And then, no, I'm not even going to do this. Nightmare on Elm Street. This is basically, basically to put this in perspective, this is between Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. Okay. So now you kind of know what... um genre not genre what like time period we're in early 80s early 80s that's all happening okay moving on another one of the most for me and i've talked about this character with you too memorable characters is the character of i think it's tangina or tangina it's t-a-n-g-i-n-a but they don't ever say it in the movie that's a choice I'm just going to go with Tangina. I think it's the character of Tangina. She's played by Zelda Rubinstein. I'm just gonna, This is going to be a PC warning, but I'm just going to go and throw this out. When I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, we referred to this character as the magical midget. I don't know why, but we did because she's super short and she has this kind of munchkin-y tone to her voice. Like in your family or just like everybody? Well... I don't know if it was just in my family, but like when I would be with like my friends and stuff and we would talk about poltergeist, we would use this term. I don't know if that was just the like my very small like social circle of like brooding gothy myth. Uh, I don't know if that was just my very small social circle of broody gothy Midwesterners, but that's like what we said. I don't know. I would never say that now, obviously. But that's because so her character is a psychic in this. And she's probably one of the best parts of this movie, but she's like a psychic. She wears these like groovy giant, like rose tinted lensed glasses everywhere. And she says like really weird stuff when she, her first scene, when she comes in, she walks in and I believe the line is, do y'all mind giving me some space? You're jamming my frequencies. And I feel like that's what I want to start saying to people when they're not social distancing. Oh, my God. Yes. I just feel like that's such a good thing. You're jamming my frequencies, man. I love that kind of like 70s lingo. It's great. Also, (laughs) a brief note, because uh, if people haven't figured out, I'm a super language nerd on uh, Tangina, the name. I was like trying to figure out what this name is because I'm like, that doesn't sound real. And I do not think that this is where this name came from, but I still did some research into the word Tangina just because. And Tangina is actually a swear word in Tagalog, meaning your mother is a whore. Oh, boy. Yeah. It was originally a term used uh, in Tagalog to curse people and then developed into a colloquial swear word, which is very common, obviously. Well, maybe not obviously. That happens very frequently in like linguistic... um, Development. Development. Sure. There you go. And for people who don't know, Tagalog is a language in the Philippines. Interestingly enough, which to be honest, I wasn't 100% in the know about this too because I haven't studied it, but Filipino is a standardized version of Tagalog. So they are technically different languages, but similar. Anyways, this is all like stuff that I would be interested in, but probably people listening to this are like, move it along, sister. Okay. Move it along, Mary. Exactly. 
Okay, so I'm going to move it along. Zelda Rubenstein claimed that she had supernatural powers and an experience during this film. The actress, not just the character. She had a vision of her dog coming to her to say goodbye, and hours later, her mother called her to tell her that her dog had died the same day. And that's why they think it's cursed? No. Okay. <laughs> that's why they think that she had supernatural powers. And then Jobeth Williams, she plays Diane Freeling, who is the kind of... The, the movie kind of centers around a couple, and she's the, the wife of the couple. She had a supernatural experience. She said that when she came home to her house, literally every day from filming, her pictures were crooked, and she would fix them every night, go work on the set, come back, and they were crooked again. Fuck that. Okay. So I will talk a little bit about the Poltergeist curse and let you know why it is. The reason that they think the film is cursed, well... The cause of it is the real skeletons. I'll talk about that in a second. But the reason that they think it's cursed is because of the unfortunate death of two of the main actors in the film within a short period of the movie coming out. Yikes. Yes. So I'll talk a little bit about the first one. And this is where we get, to be honest, one of our first crossovers between our horror podcast and the true crime podcast genre which we love so much and follow and have a lot of friends in because Dominique Dunn, who plays the older sister, Dana, in this movie, this was her, she was an actress. She had done some other things, but this was her only theatrical release because she was murdered in 1982 after this movie was released the same year when her ex-boyfriend, John Thomas Sweeney, strangled her, sending her into a coma, which she never recovered from and died five days later. So, it's a really long story, which, to be honest, I'm sure somebody has covered it. So if you want, like, the the super deets on it, you could probably find that story, John Thomas Sweeney. But I will give you the highlights because, well, because I'm sure you're interested. Why not just make it entirely a downer <laughs> instead of just partially? Yeah, it is. To be honest, the whole story, I actually read it. They had, like, a tumultuous relationship. They had only been together for, like, a super short amount of time. And she basically broke up with him. He did not take it so well. And I can't remember exactly, but I think it was like they were together for like months, like not even like years. Like he was just off the rails. But his trial was kind of a roller coaster. This is why, to be honest, if people are interested in this, they should really look it up. Because I did read about the trial, but I'm not going to go over it. But ultimately, long story short, he was acquitted of second degree murder and found guilty of the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter instead. Sentenced to six years in prison, the maximum sentence for the crime, plus six months for a misdemeanor assault charge that was also tacked on. At the sentencing, the judge criticized the jury's findings, stating that it was a case pure and simple of murder. So, that doesn't happen that often. I guess now might be a good time in the podcast to let people know I am a criminal defense lawyer. So, I have a lot of courtroom experience. And for a judge to say something like that during sentencing is not normal. So... Also, six years for killing somebody. Anyway. And then the other person who died, sadly and tragically, is the young girl, Heather O'Rourke, who plays Carol Ann. Oh, no. Yes. She died in 1988 at the age of 12 due to complications from an acute bowel obstruction. And for the timeline purposes, to give you an idea, 1988 is also when Poltergeist 3 was was released. So even though this is five years after the first film... Because she had worked on the three films in succession, they still kind of talk about that being part of the curse. Well, that's sad. Mm-hmm. Kids dying is always a downer. <sighs> yeah. 
I don't really have any jokes about that. No. As you should. <laughs> no, it, it, yeah, it's, I mean, this film is definitely tragic. And then obviously we know why it's ru- rumored to be curses because of the real skeletons thing, which if people are listening to this and they don't know this, essentially it's essentially the last scene in the movie. And I'll talk to you about it. Like when I go through the plot a little bit, but the, that's when they're used. But it's interesting because Jo Beth Williams, the one who plays Diane, she was the main person in that scene. And she basically, the quote from her during an interview was, you have to understand that this sequence took probably four or five days to shoot. So I was in the mud and goop all day, every day for like four or five days with skeletons all around me as I was screaming. In my innocence and naivety, I assumed they were not real skeletons. I assumed that they were prop skeletons made out of plastic or rubber. I found out, as did the whole crew, that they were using real skeletons because it's far too expensive to make fake skeletons out of rubber. And I think everybody got real creeped out by the idea of that. Which is like, yeah, I think so too. Though the director never confirmed that the film did use real skeletons. The film's assistant prop master, Bruce Kaysen, did confirm it, stating that the skeletons were obtained from Carolina Biological and Medical and Science Supply Company because replica skeletons at the time did not exist, unlike today in which they are relatively common and cheap. And I mean, I'm going to tell you about this. It's not like there's like a skeleton like laying on the ground. And you're like, oh, that's real skeleton. There are like eight of these fucking things. And they're all over the place. Yes. And when that actress, when she's talking about it, I'll talk about the scene. But like, she's like up close and personal with these skeletons. Yes. In fact, this scene with her and the real skeletons, there are memes of this. Like of her. Yeah, I've seen, yeah. I've seen the memes. With like the in, in the muddy water. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a reddish tint. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like super muddy, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so plot time. So right off the bat, it's kind of like classic poltergeist with for what people know it for. Carol Ann is essentially, she's a little girl. She is in front of the television screen, and it's static playing, basically. And she is talking to the television screen, basically saying things like, Hello? What do you look like? And, like, putting her hands on it. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. Just throw the whole child out. Well, oh, fuck. You have to cut that because she died. (laughs) But to be honest, like, kids kids do say creepy stuff like that. Oh, kids are creepy as shit. What if kids can, like, actually see ghosts, but then, like, we forget about it? God, that would be such a good, like, book premise. I think it's been done. Don't steal it. Okay, so then we meet the family. They have a little brother, Robbie, shares a room with Carol Ann, and for some reason, well, it's not for some reason, I know exactly why, because I'll talk about it in the story, but their room outside of the window, there's this super creepy, like, super fucked up tree outside of it, and then also, there is this stuffed clown thing that Robbie keeps in a chair at the foot of his bed, facing his bed, so it, like, watches him while he sleeps i mean it doesn't watch people while it sleeps but do keep in mind that my mother has a child-sized clown doll on a rocking horse made from a carousel horse in the living room at their house yeah i mean it's to be honest it's very similar in size to that i I mean it's like toddler sized actually it's not even it's like bigger than toddler sized yeah i wore the outfit on that clown doll (laughs) uh for halloween i think kindergarten and first grade so, I understand the size you're talking about. Yeah. Didn't cause any, no trauma caused from that. So None at all. I don't have issues about clowns. Of course not. 
But like he like keeps it at the foot of his bed looking at him. But the dumb thing about it is like so the first night that he's sleeping, he's like looking at this clown and he's like looking back at him and he's getting creeped out. And then he takes like a I think it's like a blanket or a sheet or something and like throws it over the clown. And I'm like, why don't you just move the clown, dude? You're the one who put it there. That clown doesn't need to watch you sleep. I don't know. Anyway, so that's a thing. And then there's this, I mean, the the tree out the window, it's like what you would expect like a horror tree to be like. It's like no leaves, creepy, twisty. You think you see faces in it. Yes. It's like that kind of a thing. Okay. So then we cut and we meet Steve and Diane, the parents, and they're in bed rolling a joint and getting high like you do. Which is okay. I mean, it's not like they're like, you know, snorting PCP off each other's asses, but, you know, I have no problem with that. I just thought it was kind of funny because it's also the early 80s, so this is not necessarily, I guess it's really close post-70s, so I guess a lot of people smoked pot, but this is also like the early stages of the war on drugs. So, anyway, you know that catastrophe. So, fast forward. And we basically get one of the most iconic lines from the movie. It's when Carol Ann is basically being a creepy toddler and is like, looks at her mom and she goes, she's um, in front of the TV at this point. She turns her head and goes, they're here. And the mom goes, who? And she goes, the TV people. Nope. Mm-mm. Firm pass. Fuck that. Yeah. So from that moment on, it is all sorts of crazy. Chairs move on their own in the house. They slide around. But like the mom, Diane, thinks it's like the coolest shit ever. Like she's playing little games with it. There's this like pathway in the kitchen that the chairs slide across. And the husband comes home and she's like, oh, my God, like, look what's happening. And it happens. And like she can like recreate it. She can demonstrate it. And then she takes Carol Ann and puts her in the place. And Carol Ann slides across the floor. I'm like, this woman... Would be me. This is the problem with white people. (laughs) Like, your house is clearly haunted. She's like, isn't it so cool? And it's like, no, ma'am. That's not cool. That's not supposed to be like that. I would totally live in a haunted house. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, it doesn't stay cool and cute for long because one night, the creepy-ass tree comes to life, crashes through the window, grabs Robbie, the younger brother, pulls him outside, so then they run outside to go save him, but they leave Caroline in the bedroom and then her closet turns into this like vortexy situation that's sucking up all the fucking like, like literally everything in the room. And Caroline gets sucked into the closet and disappears. So they save Robbie who is being like consumed by this tree. Like it goes down to like his neck and it, like the tree is like literally swallowing him and they pull him out. So they get him and then they're like, where's Caroline? They're like in the room. So they go and they try to look for her and she's gone. So. Then you have a quizzitive look on your face. The fuck? Yeah. Yeah, so that... It's like two different movies. Well, I mean, it's all about, like, you know, hauntings and stuff. There's a big difference between, like, oh, a chair moves across the floor on its own, and, like, oh, a tree has come to life, stolen my child from his bed, and is consuming him. Yeah, well, I think it's supposed to be how... You know how they talk about, like, when you have... So this is, this is like a haunting, not an, not demonic possession. But you know how it's like when you have infestation, and it's like it starts with like little things. I think like that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, I don't know. 
I feel like we're that one kid in middle school who going up the stairs would take it like four at a time because he thought he was so cool because he did it. (laughs) That's what this movie is. We've just taken four stairs at a time. Well, to be honest, this is not even that far into the movie either. There's there's quite a bit more to go, but I'm going to summarize a lot of it. So anyway, so they decide to fix this problem and find Carol Ann. So they, okay, they know Carol Ann is like in the spirit world because they can kind of hear her sometimes like when they like yell out to her, especially when the TV is on. So they go to the university. I don't know what university is, but they go and find the paranormal research center, which no university has, and find paranormal investigators, namely Dr. Lesh. So Dr. Lesh is going to come with her team and help. There are, I'm going to say this right now, seriously strong sapphic vibes between Dr. Lesh and Diane. Yes. Like you would love it. I'm so on board already. For people who don't know, there's nothing Cole likes more than a lesbian romance line in anything. I just, I, I'm also okay with like really any romance line, but I do love like a sapphic friends to lovers. Like, (laughs) it's so good yeah because like so dr lesh basically has to like console diane and stuff and like they sit on the couch and they have these like really like long talks about like life and stuff i my descriptions do not even do it justice like when so when dr lesh leaves she's gonna leave and she's gonna go get um tangina to come help because it's obviously like a big problem here and uh at that point she's like I promise I'll come back. And then they have this like really long hug. But they don't kiss. They don't kiss. Fucking rude. No, there's just longing. Also, when the investigators are there, there's this scene I'll mention that it's there's like a steak. It's like a raw steak on the counter. And it like starts inching across the counter by itself in front of one of the investigators. And then it starts to rapidly decay and all these maggots can't like come out of it it's very weird but at this moment i think we all realized that it was just no ordinary stakeout lord i know i'm on fire today folks okay anyway so let's like move on so around this time we also learned that from a scene when steve is talking to his boss mr teague so steve oh i forgot steve's job is like he sells units in this like subdivision thing that he lives in And he's like the number one employee. But we learn through a series of events and conversation topics I'm not going to go through that the subdivision that Steve lives on was built on top of a graveyard. Of course it was. (laughs) And they just didn't tell anybody that. And it later comes out, not during this scene, but it later comes out that they moved the gravestones, but they just left all the bodies in the ground when they built the houses on top of them. Yeah. So anyway, so Dr. Lesh goes and gets Tangina. Tangina comes and basically tells him that Caroline is still alive inside the house, but she's being held hostage in the spirit realm. I'm just going to go ahead and say right here that every time you say Carol Ann, I think anime and eat the cake anime. (laughs) Literally every single time you say Carol Ann. Literally every single time. Those are two very different characters. Eat the cake anime. I don't want to eat the cake. Oh, God. We love ourselves. 
Okay, so anyways, so Tangina also tells him that there's a terrible presence in there with Carol Ann as well, and it keeps Carol Ann close to her because it is attracted to her life force, and that Carol Ann thinks it's just another child, so she, like, hangs out with it, but it's actually the beast. Okay, so then they kind of figure out that there is, like, a vortex from the closet in the original room down to the living room, where it's, like, they do these tests where, like, they open the door, and there's, like, they throw a tennis ball in, and the tennis ball teleports and comes down in the living room and it's covered with red ectoplasm which looks just like cherry jello so the tennis ball goes into the closet and then comes into the living room covered in cherry jello okay you following me it's like a laundry shoot a cherry jello laundry shoot well if you're washing the laundry afterwards anyway it doesn't matter that's true there's also the closet is like there's a strobe light inside I don't know how else to put it. There is one. Now, to clarify, because this was the 80s, so you do have to ask, uh, is this a strobe light, like an actual strobe light, or is it just a flashing light because it is a portal to the spirit realm living room? The second thing you said. Okay. Okay, so basically what they're going to do, there is obviously a lot more to this, but they're going to essentially have somebody go in and... They're going to do... It's so stupid. They're doing that thing where they're going to tie a rope around someone's waist, and they're going to go in, find Carol Ann, and then I guess go down to... Get ported down to the living room afterwards, and everything's going to be okay. Then why do you need the rope? So they don't get lost in the spirit world, just in case. Oh, okay. And it's funny because originally Tangina is like, I'm going to go, but then uh, Diane, the mom, is like, no, I'll go... I'll go. And Tangina goes, you've never done this before. And Diane goes, neither have you. And Tangina's basically like, okay. (laughs) It's a fair point. I mean. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, long story short, Diane does go in the closet. Then she teleports down into the living room. And she's got Carol Ann. And they're both covered in cherry jello. It's real gross. And Tangina's like, the house is clean. But the family is going to move out anyways. Because they're not dumb, except Diane is dumb because she wants to stay because she's kind of like, oh, this, I think this house is okay now. And Steve is like, no, we're absolutely not staying. Steve is going to go tell his boss that he quits and is like, okay, Diane, like, finish packing. We've got the moving truck here. I'm going to go tell my boss I quit. Hopefully nothing happens while he's gone. Spoiler alert, it does. Yep. So Diane decides to draw a bath, which I feel like when you decide to draw a bath in a horror movie, you were just asking for fucked up shit to happen. Mm-hmm. Nobody takes a bath in a horror movie without something going seriously awry. And it does. So she draws a bath and then Robbie and Carol Ann are playing in the room. Robbie goes up to the bed. The creepy clown is still at the foot of his bed. Except this time he wakes up a little bit later and the clown is gone. So he's like, I got to find my clown. So he's checking all around for his clown. Checks under the bed. Can't find it. He's doing all sorts of stuff. Ultimately, the clown comes up from behind him, grabs him, and starts dragging him under the bed. Then Diane had finished her bath and is laying on her bed. And she starts, like, levitating and, like, bucking wildly above the bed like something is controlling her. And then she starts basically tumbling. I don't know another better word for it. Up the wall and across the ceiling. Then gooey jello stuff starts to appear from the closet door. 
and a big ghost skeleton monster thing appears. Diane gets really scared by it, so she is going to run to the neighbor for help. She does not take her kids first. But she slips and falls into the pool, which they were building a pool at the time, which is all muddy water now because it's raining. And then all the skeletons start to pop out of the water right around her, like everyone has seen in that gif. And that's that. And so she... And then, like, coffins are popping out out of the ground and, like, opening up and, like... Oh, because of the bodies. Yeah, in the graveyard. They're the dead people from the graveyard. Oh, boy. Yes. So then Diane gets out of the pool, finally. She runs in to help her kids because she remembers she left them in with the demon monster thing. Mm. It's, like, bad parenting. Someone call OCS on this woman. And when she gets to the room, she realizes that the closet door has transformed into a giant gaping butthole. Now, I know what you're thinking. That doesn't make any sense. You can't be serious. Which is why I have picture proof that I'm going to show you. Oh. Oh, my. Okay. Uh, um, All right. I mean, I wouldn't steer you wrong. That is a butthole. And I know my butthole, sir. <sighs> All right. This movie is so chaotic. All right. Keep going. I'm... Yeah. Oh, I'm exhausted. Oh, also, they're like... No, I'm They're so- like grumbly rumble noises that come out of the butthole. Mike gets real hungry. <laughs> oh my god, I crack myself up sometimes. Anyways, she ends up pulling the kids out before they get sucked up by the butt. Then, Steve comes home just in time to see all the coffins and stuff shooting up out of the ground everywhere. Like, literally, like, their front porch and, like, their lawn and shit like that. So he's like running. He reunites with the family. They basically like everyone gets together and gets out of the house. And then they get into the car and the house gets like imploded into this like vortex situation and disappears. Then the family basically they drive off, they escape and they live happily ever after in the Holiday Inn. The end. Oh, did you think that was a joke by your lack of response? No. This movie literally ends with the family going to the Holiday Inn and entering their hotel room. And then they put, they push the television outside. And that's that's how it's done. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't even talk about... I was like, you know how I always... Oh, my God. Well, there's not a lot more to it other than I was like... I was like, I always talk about how I say don't go into the light. I literally didn't even explain what that was. Essentially, what it is, is I think the light is, like, crossing over. So, if you go into the light in the spirit realm, like, you're gone. Like, you're donezos. So, they... Tangina, like, basically has the mom, like, ask Caroline if she sees the light. And she's like, yes. And then at one point, Tangina will be like, tell her, don't go into the light. Don't go into the light, Caroline. And um, then the mom is like, Caroline, stay away from the light. There's a lot more to it. But, yeah. So, that's Poltergeist. (laughs) But in the end, it's okay because everyone ends up at the Holiday Inn. That is never a happy ending. Well, sometimes happy endings do occur in Holiday Inns, but... Yikes. There's actually... Sometimes Holiday Inns are lovely. I used to, When I used to have to drive back and forth from here to Michigan, I would always stay at a Holiday Inn. Anyways, so now that you know the story of Poltergeist, final thoughts. I... I do like this movie. I would not list this movie as one of my like top favorites by any means. It's not really my, I don't know how to say this for, I like my eighties movies kind of slashery and stupid. This obviously is a ghost movie. 
part of it doesn't make sense. And by part of it, I mean almost all of it. Yes. <laughs> but there are some kind of funny parts and there are some suspenseful parts. To be honest, when the kid is looking under the bed for the clown, it's scary. So ultimately, I would say, I know that there are some reviewers who really didn't like this. I actually think it is good. I think for an 80s ghost story, it is quite well done. And I think that it, you know, it spawned obviously an entire franchise. So people must have obviously agreed with that. In fact, it was, I think, I don't think I know. It was the highest grossing horror film of 1982. So it was like very successful. Ultimately, at first when I was watching it, it was weird because I had obviously seen this before. But when I was younger, and I remember being like, this movie was so great. It was scary. It was cool. I don't necessarily feel the same way now. I feel like it's okay, but I don't feel like it's bad. So, yeah. I don't obviously give ratings. It's not really my shtick, but I would say it's worth a watch, but I wouldn't be ready to be wowed by this. And that's that. Anyway. Poltergeist, now tell me what you're going to talk about. Well, as I already mentioned, I am talking about The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. It's a little bit outside of the box because it is a classic. It was originally published in 1898. That was a long time ago. Yeah, so just over 120 years old. So... We just finished watching The Haunting of Bly Manor, and I'm sure that a lot of listeners have watched it as well. Uh, The Turn of the Screw is actually the story that that series is based off of, and it's a big reason why I decided to read it now. There are a bunch of differences between the two, and I'm probably just not going to go back and forth on that. You're just going to stick to the book? Yes. That's probably the best way to do it. For the most part. Yeah. I... It's like I tried doing that with Pet Cemetery, and we had to re-record it because I was like, nope, too much. Yep, too much. Uh, the cover of the edition that I got, you can either think of as boring or minimalist. Uh, it is a Penguin Classics edition, and it just says, I had seen at the top, and then at the bottom it has the title. I actually really like it, personally. It is actually a product red what does that mean? Version. Product Red is the uh, HIV and AIDS foundation oh. that partners with different companies like Apple. There's always like a red iPhone. Um, yeah, I had a little red um, iPod Nano when those were a thing. Yeah. So that's cool. I had no idea Penguin did that. I tried to look into it so I could see what all editions they have and they don't do it anymore. So <laughs> fuck you. Oh, and the cover design was done by Studio Frith, which I'm assuming is just like a graphic design company. Probably. So there are only 121 pages in this book, and it also came out kind of at the days when Victorian literature was edging towards modernism. So with regards to the plot, there's not a lot to tell you. But... The story begins the night of a Christmas Eve gathering, and a man named Douglas has announced that he has a ghost story to tell involving two children. And that is the whole, like, point of the turn of the screw is like, oh, a ghost story is terrifying, but when it is to a child, that is another turn of the screw. Oh, okay. I had actually wondered why it's called... um the turn of the screw. The turn of the screw. I, to be honest, I thought it was because is this like a British book? Did yes. you say that? Yes. I thought it was like British slang that we just don't understand. Like when we watch like Bake Off and we're like, 
I understood half of what they just said. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I understand 80% of this. I mean, this is cool. It's my language. God. Actually, they used that line in the first episode of Bly Manor as well. Yes. And I was really excited. Honestly, like there were, obviously there were huge differences between Bly Manor and the turn of the screw, but there were enough references. I really appreciate it. Honestly, if you liked Bly Manor, I highly recommend reading the turn of the screw because it's fun to see all the Easter eggs that they threw in. So he says that his story involves two children, Flora and Miles, as well as his sister's governess. But like, he's not secretly Miles. His sister is not Flora. Like, this is just later employment Mm -hmm. uh, with whom he was in love. Okay. But it's not sapphic love. (laughs) Anyway, our governess remains unnamed throughout the entire book, which was very annoying for my notes. Uh, so I just started calling her G, but after watching Bly Manor for the purpose of this episode of the podcast, I will call her Poppins. <laughs> See above mention of Sapphic Love. Oh, so good. Anyway, so I'm going to give a pretty thorough summary of the book. I figure since this book is 120 years old, if you wanted to read it, you would have by now. So skipping over kind of the initial scene of Poppins arriving at Bly Long story short, like, Flora is a delight and Miles has been expelled. Uh, She's walking the grounds one evening and she sees a sinister-looking man on the top floor of one of the towers of Bly. And she chooses not to say anything. This just stuck out to me. So she chooses not to say anything to Mrs. Gross. I think she's just a maid in the book. She's a housekeeper in the show. Um, But she chooses not to say anything to Mrs. Gross. Because Mrs. Gross is so happy to see her and she doesn't want to ruin the mood. And I'm like, (laughs) ma'am, you saw a mysterious man in your house. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to say that's unhealthy, but that's unhealthy. So later on, Poppins sees the same man staring in the dining room window at her. So she scrambles outside to look for him. And he is gone. And she's trying to find the exact same spot where he had been standing and right at that exact moment mrs gross walks into the dining room sees poppins and freaks out okay and at that point poppins is like oh yeah i've seen him before too i just didn't mention (laughs) which isn't the weirdest thing because mrs gross is like oh yeah that's fine that's just the ghost of peter quint he's the former valet of the house well i mean you know Later on, while she's down by the lake, Poppins sees the figure of a woman in black staring at Flora, and Flora is, like, resolutely ignoring the woman in black. And Poppins believes that this is Miss Jessel, and or the ghost of Miss Jessel, who is Poppins's uh, the, predecessor. The predecessor. Thank you. I was looking for that word, and I couldn't find it. It was lost in the very disorganized filing cabinet that is my mind. And... Flora intentionally refusing to acknowledge Miss Jessel makes Poppins feel like she's going insane. There's a whole lot of like mental health imagery going on in this book. There's a point where she's like, she's intentionally pretending she's not there to drive me crazy. Like it's a lot. There's a lot happening (laughs) here. There are a few more instances where Poppins sees ghosts around the house, like on the stairs and stuff. It's whatever. Uh, she also finds Flora 
with whom she shares a room, which wasn't uncommon when you were like the governess of a small child. She finds Forrest standing at the window a few times, and the second time she wakes up and sees Forrest staring out of the window, she quietly slips out of the room to try and see what Forrest was looking at, and she reaches the tower and looks out onto the lawn where Foro was staring, and Miles is out on the lawn, but he's staring up at the top of the tower where she had earlier seen Peter Quint. Okay. It's kind of dry. It gets a little bit more entertaining in a hot minute, I promise. <laughs> so Poppins decides that Flora and Miles are frequently meeting with these ghosts, and Mrs. Gross asks her to write the absentee uncle, but Poppins refuses. But she changes her mind after she walks into the schoolroom and sees Miss Jessel. So she's like, okay, fine. Like, I need to get a man involved because I'm just a, a weak-willed woman. Uh, and she is later told that the boy who runs errands into town for them did not post the letter that she wrote because he could not find it. This factors in a little bit later. So shortly thereafter, Poppins is talking to Miles and suddenly realizes that she hasn't seen Flora in a while and she doesn't know where she is. And she and Mrs. Gross find her by the lake. And when Poppins sees Jessel, she points her out to Flora and Mrs. Gross, but neither of them can see her. And so Flora freaks the fuck out and begs to be taken away from Poppins and like kept from her forever. And so Mrs. Gross takes her to the uncle in London. So now at this point, it's just Miles and Poppins in the house. Oh. And Flora's like not in the story anymore. Why do, chi- why do children get rain over what they do? I don't know. They were spoiled aristocratic children no. in the late 1800s. Yeah, that's fair enough. The night of their departure, after dinner, Poppins asks Miles if he stole the letter and he admits that he did. She then asks if he was expelled for stealing mail, and he replies by saying no. He was expelled because of things he said to classmates that he liked who then repeated those things. It's all very vague. (laughs) And suddenly, Poppins sees Peter Quint outside the window and starts to freak out. And Miles doesn't see him at first. And Poppins clutches him to her to keep him safe, and she's screaming. And finally, Miles screams at Quint to go away and Peter Quint disappears and when Poppins looks down Miles is dead in her arms and that's literally the last sentence oh my god what it is I caught him yes I held him it may be imagined with what a passion but at the end of a minute I began to feel what it truly was that I held we were alone with a quiet day and his little heart dispossessed had stopped literally the last sentence (sighs) I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Because Miles had been living there with that ghost for a long time. Like, why does he just die all of a sudden? So there are a couple of schools of thought. Buckle up. I'm about to turn into an English major. For those of you playing at home, I do actually have a bachelor's in literature. So there's a couple of theories here. Reading this book is really fun for me because I haven't read literature like this in a really long time. There is a camp of people that thinks that... Basically, like, what Henry James is saying here is that the trauma of Peter's ghost leaving Miles kills him. Because they're trying to imply that, like, Peter Quint was possessing Miles. Okay. Do they reference that in the book at all? Like, it, is Well, it... she says dispossessed. Oh, yeah, I guess so. But, like, in the, that's in the last line. In the story up to then, is there any sort of um, 
behavior that would suggest that. She just talks about a lot of communing. Like she's convinced that Miles is communing with Quint and Flora is communing with Jessel. Okay. But I have a different theory. My theory is that there are no ghosts. I think that Poppins is going insane out in a country house in the middle of nowhere. And I will tell you why. I don't think that the children are seeing the ghosts at all. And I think that she believes that they are maliciously making her think that she's going insane. But surprise, she is already there. And I think that's why Flora did not look at Jessel when they were out at the lake. I think that is why no one else is seeing these ghosts like. But did Mrs. Gross say she saw one? Well, so what it was is Poppins described who she saw outside the dining room window. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Gross was like, oh, yeah, that's Peter Quint. He died here. Interesting. And I think, and like I said, this is one of two kind of very common schools of thought. And there's actually a lot of critical articles written about it. And I kind of like glanced at it. I do not think that Miles dies because Quint is leaving his body. I think that Poppins basically has a breakdown and accidentally smothers him in her skirts and kills him. Okay. That's my theory. (laughs) On the turn of the screw. I also have another slightly smaller theory. I think that Miles is gay. Okay. And why is this? In typical Victorian fashion, it would be hinted at, but not explicitly said. Even Oscar Wilde is kind of vague about it. Well, as vague as he can be, which isn't very. I think that he was expelled because he says he said nice or he said things to the students that he liked. He went to an all boys school. So I think he was expelled because he expressed romantic feelings for the boys at his school that he liked. And those boys, because they were uncomfortable, went and told the teachers. Okay. And that's my theory. I think he was expelled for being gay. But do you have any... Does that theory have anything to do with his death or that's a different thing? Nope, just separate. Okay. There's like a small sub theory in there, actually, um, because people really like to read into sexual imagery in Victorian literature that the children were sexually abused, that like Miles was molested by Quint and Flora was molested by Jessel. But I didn't read any of those because I've read enough books that have pedophilia in them. So I didn't read any of those articles. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could, I could see that. But yeah, that's the turn of the screw. Uh, all in all, I liked this story Not to get super lit nerdy again, but it is written kind of as the early signs of modernism were starting to emerge, and I hate modernism. So it was a little bit to slog through at the end of the day. I would give it three out of five ghosts by the lake that you may or may not see. Hmm. It also seems like it's a quick read, so if people liked Bly Manor, they may want to just read it just to read it. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that bad. Like I said, it was... Short. It definitely falls under the novella category as opposed to like a full-blown novel. I kind of like the storyline of Blind Manor more, but maybe we'll talk about that on some other episode. Because there was seven club. <laughs> However, before we get to our little like final points to talk about, because the cover is a little bit boring, I wanted to show you a really fun one. So there is a blog called Bizarre Victoria. That is run by a woman who is a Victorian literature specialist. And some of the articles that she does are bad book covers. And she does one for Turn of the Screw. And her favorite 
the one that she considers the worst is, and we will, sorry, I just realized, listeners, gentle listeners, uh, that you can't see what I'm about to show Max. We will post this picture in the stories, and we will also post the link to this blog article in the description for this episode if you want to go and look at it. This is my favorite cover. So that's a screw. Is that a rusty wrench and a non-rusty wrench? That's the thing. It's not a screw. It's a nut. And oh. It's a nut and two wrenches. There's not even a screw on here. Also, this story has nothing to do with handyman tools. But a screw would go into the nut. Maybe. Maybe it goes on the end of a pipe. <laughs> yeah. You just don't know. But that's my favorite. It's my favorite weird one. But if you go to the bottom of the article, she goes through like all kinds of different like really weird iterations of covers for this book. And she has commentary and she's very funny. And I recommend that everyone go and look and read her commentary. Yeah, there's a lot of them. But yeah, that's it. That's the turn of the screw. That's cool. Okay, so would you die in the turn of the screw? I'm going to say probably not. Although Miles dies, that's a very specific scenario. And overall, this just isn't that kind of book. Would you die in Poltergeist? Drowning in Cherry Jello? No, actually, no. I'm trying to think. Nobody dies in Poltergeist. So I guess not. Another disappointment. Well, in real life, people died. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think that I think that Spielberg wanted it to be a ghost story just to be like spooky and stuff like that. But there wasn't time to die when he was just throwing everything else at it. Yeah, like a tree coming to life and trying to eat you. Anyway, folks, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, we are on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us. Questions, comments, concerns, and corrections. Suggestions. Suggestions at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.